Chapter Six, Part One of the History of Standard Oil, Volume One, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Strengthening the Foundations. From the time the Central Association announced itself, independent refiners and the producers as a body watched developments with suspicion. They had little to go on. They had no means of proving what was actually the fact that the Central Association was the Standard Oil Company working secretly to bring its competitors under control or drive them out of business. They had no way of knowing what was actually the fact that the Standard had contracts with the Central Erie and the Pennsylvania, which gave them rebate on the lowest tariff which others paid. That this must be the case, however, they were convinced, and they determined early in 1876 to call on Congress for another investigation. A hearing was practically ensured, for Congress since 1872 had given serious attention to the transportation troubles. The Wyndham Committee of 1874 had made a report, the sweeping recommendations of which gave much encouragement to those who suffered from the practices of the railroads. Among other things, this committee recommended that all rates, drawbacks, etc., be published at every point, and no changes allowed in them without proper notification. It recommended the Bureau of Commerce, which in 1902, twenty-eight years later, was created. So serious did the Wyndham Committee consider the situation in 1874 that it made the following radical recommendations. The only means of securing and maintaining reliable and effective competition between railways is through national or state ownership or control of one or more lines which, being unable to enter into combinations, will serve as a regulation of other lines. One or more double-track freight railways honestly and thoroughly constructed, owned or controlled by the government, and operated at a low rate of speed would doubtless be able to carry at a much less cost than can be done under the present system of operating fast and slow trains on the same road, and, being incapable of entering into combinations, would no doubt serve as a very valuable regulator of existing railroads within the range of their influence. With Congress in such a temper, the oil men felt that there might be some hope of securing the regulation of interstate commerce they had asked for in 1872. The agitation resulted in the presentation in the House of Representatives, in April, of the first interstate commerce bill which promised to be effective. The bill was presented by James H. Hopkins of Pittsburgh. Mr. Hopkins had before his eyes the uncanny fate of the independent oil interests of Pittsburgh, some twenty-five factories in that town having been reduced to two or three in three and one-half years. He had seen the oil-refining business of the state steadily reduced, and he thought it high time that something was done. In aid of his bill, a House investigation was asked. It was soon evident that the Standard was an enemy of this investigation. Through the efforts of a good friend of the organization, Congressman H. B. Payne of Cleveland, the matter was referred to the Committee on Commerce, where a member of the House, J. N. Camden, whose refinery the Camden Consolidated Oil Company, if it had not already gone, soon after went into the Standard Oil Alliance, appeared as adviser of the chairman. Now what Mr. Hopkins wanted was to compel the railroads to present their contracts with the Standard Oil Company. 
the committee summoned the proper railroad officers messrs cassett devereux and rudder and o h payne treasurer of the standard oil company of the railroad men only mr cassett appeared and he refused to answer the questions asked or to furnish the documents demanded mr payne refused also to furnish the committee with information the two principal witnesses of the oil men were e g patterson of titusville to whose energy the investigation was largely due and frank rockefeller of cleveland a brother of john d rockefeller mr patterson sketched the history of the oil business since the south improvement company identified the standard oil company with that organization and framed the specific complaint of the oilmen as follows the railroad companies have combined with an organization of individuals known as the standard ring they give to that party the sole and entire control of all the petroleum refining interests and petroleum shipping interests in the united states and consequently place the whole producing interest entirely at their mercy if they succeed they place the price of refined oil as high as they please it is simply optional with them how much they give to us for what we produce frank rockefeller gave a pretty complete story of the trials of an independent refiner in cleveland during the preceding four years his testimony in regard to the south improvement company has already been quoted he declared that at the moment his concern the pioneer oil company was unable to get the same rates as a standard the freight agent frankly told him that unless he could give the road the same amount of oil to transport that the standard did he could not give the rate the standard enjoyed mr rockefeller said that in his belief there was a pooling arrangement between the railroads and the standard and that the rebate given was divided up between the standard oil company and the railroad officials he repeatedly declared to the committee that he did not know this to be a positive fact that he had no proof but that he believed such was the truth among the railroad officials whom he mentioned as in his opinion enjoying spoils were w h vanderbilt thomas scott and general devereux of course the newspapers had it that he had sworn that such was the fact colonel scott promptly wired the following denial the papers of this morning published that a man named rockefeller stated before your committee that myself and others of this company were participants in rebates made to the standard oil company so far as the statement relates to myself and the officers of this company it is unqualifiedly false and i have to ask that you will summon the officers of the standard oil company or any other parties that may have any knowledge of that subject in order that such villainous and unwarranted statements may be corrected general devereux published in the cleveland press an equally emphatic denial although mr rockefeller promptly declared that he had stated to the committee that he had no personal knowledge that there was such a pool as he had intimated between the railroad men and the standard that he had only given his suspicions there were plenty of people to overlook his explanation and assert that he had given proof of such a division of spoils the belief spread and is met even today in oil circles now the only basis for any such assertion was the fact that w h vanderbilt peter h watson and amasa stone were at that time eighteen seventy six stockholders in the standard oil company there is no evidence of which the writer knows that general devereux or colonel scott ever held any stock in the concern indeed in eighteen seventy nine when a j cassatt was under examination as to the relations of the pennsylvania railroad and the standard oil company his own lawyer took pains to question him on this point 
an effort, no doubt, to silence the accusation, which at that date was constantly repeated. Mr. Cassett, Mr. McVeigh said, I want to direct your attention to a personal matter which was asked you to a certain extent. You were asked whether you had any knowledge that Mr. Vanderbilt, representing the New York Central, or Mr. Jewett, representing the Erie, had any interest whatever in the Standard Oil Company or any of its affiliated companies. I wish to extend that question to the other trunk lines. I wish you would state whether or not, to your knowledge, Mr. Garrett or anybody representing the Baltimore and Ohio had any such interest. They have not, to my knowledge. Then I wish you would state whether Mr. Scott or yourself, or any officers of the Pennsylvania Railroad, had any such interest. Never to my knowledge. I speak of absolute knowledge as to myself, but as to Mr. Scott, to the best of my knowledge and belief. Of course, after this controversy, the railroads were more obdurate than ever. Mr. Payne and Mr. Camden were active, too, in securing the suppression of the investigations, and they soon succeeded not only in doing that, but in pigeonholing for the time Mr. Hopkins' interstate commerce bill. But the oil men had not been trusting entirely to congressional relief. From the time that they became convinced that the railroads meant to stand by the terms of the Rudder Circular, they began to seek an independent outlet to the sea. The first project to attract attention was the Columbia Conduit Pipeline. This line was begun by one of the picturesque characters of western Pennsylvania, Dr. David Hostetter, the maker of the famous Hostetter's Bitters. Dr. Hostetter's Bitters' headquarters were in Pittsburgh. He had become interested in oil there and had made investments in Butler County. In 1874, he found himself hampered in disposing of his oil and conceived the idea of piping it to Pittsburgh, where he could make a connection with the Baltimore and Ohio Road, which up to this time had refused to go into the oil pool. Now, at that time, the right of eminent domain for pipes had been granted in but eight counties of western Pennsylvania. Allegheny County, in which Pittsburgh is located, was not included in the eight, a restriction which the oil men attributed rightly, no doubt, to the influence of the Pennsylvania Railroad in the state legislature. That road could hardly have been expected to allow the pipes to go to Pittsburgh and connect with a rival road if it could help it. Dr. Hostetter succeeded in buying a right-of-way through the county, however, and laid his pipes within a few miles of the city to a point where he had to pass under a branch of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The spot chosen was the bed of a stream over which the railroad passed by a bridge. Dr. Hostetter claimed he had bought the bed of the run and that the railroad owned simply the right to span the run. He put down his pipes, and the railroad sent a force of armed men to the spot, tore up the pipes, fortified their position, and prepared to hold the fort. The oil men came down in a body and, seizing an opportune moment, got possession of the disputed point. The railroad had thirty of them arrested for riot, but was not able to get them committed. It did succeed, however, in preventing the relaying of the pipes, and a long litigation over Dr. Hostetter's right to pass under the road ensued. Disgusted with this turn of affairs, Dr. Hostetter leased the line to three young independent oil men, of whom we are to hear more later. They were B. D. Benson, David McElvey, and Major Robert E. Hopkins, all of Titusville. Resourceful and determined, they built tank wagons into which the oil from the pipe was run and was carted across the tracks on the public highway, turned into storage tanks, 
and again repiped and pumped to Pittsburgh. They were soon doing a good business. The fight to get the Columbia conduit line into Pittsburgh aroused again the agitation in favor of a free pipeline bill, and early in 1875 bills were presented in both the Senate and House of the State, and bitter and long fights over them followed. It was charged that the bills were in the interest of Dr. Hostetter. He wants to transport his blood bitters cheaply, sneered one opponent. Many petitions for the bill were circulated, but there were even stronger remonstrances, and the source of some of them was suspicious enough. For instance, that of the Pittsburgh refiners, representing about one-third of the refining capacity of the Pennsylvania district, and nearly one-third of the entire capacity now in business. As the Pittsburgh refiners were nearly all either owned or leased by the Standard Concern, and the few independents had no hope save in a free pipeline, there seems to be no doubt about the origin of that remonstrance. Although the bills were strongly supported, they were defeated, and the Columbia Conduit Line continued to break bulk and cart its oil over the railroad track. Another route was arranged which for a time promised success. This was to bring crude oil by barges to Pittsburgh, then to carry the refined down the Ohio River to Huntington, and thence by the Richmond and Chesapeake Road to Richmond. This scheme, started in February, was well underway by May, and on to Richmond was the cry of the independence. Everything possible was done to make this attempt fail. An effort was even made to prevent the barges which came down the Allegheny River from unloading, and this actually succeeded for some time. There seemed to be always some hitch in each one of the channels which the independents tried, some point at which they could be so harassed that the chance of a living freight rate which they had seen was destroyed. Some time in April 1876 the most ambitious project of all was announced. This was a seaboard pipeline to be run from the oil regions to Baltimore. Up to this time the pipelines had been used merely to gather the oil from the wells and carry it to the railroads. The longest single line in operation was the Columbia Conduit, and it was built thirty miles long. The idea of pumping oil over the mountains to the sea was regarded generally as chimerical. To a trained civil engineer it did not, however, present any insuperable obstacles, and in the winter of 1875 and 1876 Henry Harley, whose connection with the Pennsylvania Transportation Company has already been noted, went to his old chief in the Hoosick Tunnel, General Herman Haupt, and laid the scheme before him. If it was a feasible idea, would General Haupt take charge of the engineering for the Pennsylvania Transportation Company? At the same time Mr. Harley employed General Benjamin Butler to look after the legal side of such an undertaking. Both General Haupt and General Butler were enthusiastic over the idea and took hold of the work with a will. It was not long before the scheme began to attract serious attention. The Eastern papers in particular took it up. The references to it were as a whole favorable. It was regarded everywhere as a remarkable undertaking. Worthy, the New York graphics said, to be coupled with the Brooklyn Bridge, the blowing up of Hell Gate, and the tunneling of the Hudson River. As General Haupt's plans show, it was a tremendous undertaking, for the line would be, when finished, at least five hundred miles long, and it would be worked by thirty or more tremendous pumps. On July 25 a meeting was held at Parker's Landing, presenting publicly the reports of General Haupt and General Butler. 
The authority and seriousness of the scheme as set forth at this meeting alarmed the railroads. If this seaboard line went through, it was farewell to the railroad standard combination. Oil could be shipped to the seaboard by it at a cost of sixteen and two-third cents a barrel, General Haupt estimated. All of the interest, little and big, which believed they would be injured by the success of the line, began an attack. Curiously enough, one of the first points of hostility was General Haupt himself. An effort was made to discredit his estimate in order to scare people from taking stock. They recalled the Hoosac Tunnel scandal and the fact that the general once built a bridge which had tumbled down, ridiculed his estimate of the cost, etc., etc. The card in which General Haupt answered his chief critic, one who signed himself Viddy, was admirable. A card from General Haupt. What are the charges that I am requested to smash? They are, as I understand them from others, from some I have not seen, that I once built a bridge that tumbled down, that I was connected with the Hoosac Tunnel that cost seventeen millions of dollars, that my estimates of cost of transportation are ridiculously low and unreliable. 1. I did design a bridge some twenty years ago, and constructed a span near Greenfield in Massachusetts, which gave way owing to a defective casting while being tested. The bridge was not finished, had not been opened to the public, had not been accepted from the contractor who repaired the damage in such a manner that a recurrence of a break would have been impossible. I have built spans of bridges and tested them until they broke, to ascertain their ultimate strength, but I supposed that this was a matter that concerned myself and not the public. If the bridge had been thrown open for public use, and an accident had then occurred from defective design or material, the engineer might have been censurable, but not otherwise. In an experience of nearly forty years I have never had a bridge to fail, after being open for travel, or a piece of masonry to give way. No accident occurred even upon the temporary military bridges constructed during the war, which President Lincoln used to say were built of bean poles and corn stalks. 2. How about the Hoosick Tunnel? In 1856 I undertook to build the Hoosick Tunnel, at that time ridiculed as visionary and utterly impracticable. I carried it on until 1862, when its practicability was so fully demonstrated that it was considered some discredit to Massachusetts to allow the work to proceed under engineers from another state, and honorable members of the legislature declared that Massachusetts had engineers as comp as any that could be found in Pennsylvania. The work in my hands, as was proved by reports of investigating committees, was costing less than two million dollars, and the trouble then was that the margin was considered too large, and that I was making too much money on the two million dollars which the state had agreed to advance. In 1862 the state took the work out of my hands and put it under control of state commissioners and engineers. The result was that instead of getting the Hoosac Tunnel completed for two million dollars, which was amply sufficient in the hands of H. Haupt Company, it has now cost, under state management, nearly seventeen million dollars. I hope this explanation will be considered sufficient to smash number two. As to number three, the insufficiency of my estimate. The items which enter into such an estimate are pure and simple. There has been but one omission, and that is malicious mischief or deviltry, and this item is so uncertain that, without a more intimate acquaintance with Viddy and his supporters, I could not undertake to estimate it. I have put coal at five dollars per ton, or eighteen cents per bushel, now worth five cents at Brady's, 
and eight at Pittsburgh. Is this not enough? I have allowed fifty percent greater consumption at each station that has been estimated by others. I have allowed a thousand dollars a year for each of two engine men at each station. Will anyone say this is not sufficient? And I have, to be safe, estimated the work down below the results given by any of the ordinary hydraulic formula. It would be absurd to tell experienced pipemen that oil cannot be pumped fifteen miles under nine hundred pounds pressure through a four-inch pipe with a discharge of five thousand barrels a day, which is all that the estimate is based upon, and it allows sixty-five days stoppage besides. Please, gentlemen, let me alone. I have had enough of newspaper controversy in former years. I am sick of it. H. Howe. At the same time that General Howe was attacked, the Pennsylvania Transportation Company was criticized for bad management. A long letter to the Derrick, August 14, 1876, claimed that the company in the past had been mismanaged, that the credit it asked could not be given safely, that its management had been such that it had scarcely any business left. Indeed, this critic claimed that the last pipeline organized, a small line known as the Keystone, had during the last six months done almost double the business of the Pennsylvania. Under the direction of the Pennsylvania Railroad, it was believed, the Philadelphia papers began to attack the plan. Their claim was that the charters under which the Pennsylvania Transportation Company expected to operate would not allow them to lay such a pipeline. The opposition became such that the New York papers began to take notice of it. The Derrick on September 16, 1876, copies an article from the New York Bulletin, in which it is said that the railroads and the Standard Oil Company now stand in gladiatorial array with shields poised and sword ready to deal the cut. An opposition began to arise, too, from farmers through whose property an attempt was being made to obtain right-of-way. In Indiana and Armstrong counties the farmers complained to the Secretary of Internal Affairs, saying that the company had no business to take their property for a pipeline. One of the common complaints of the farmers' newspapers was that leakage from the pipes would spoil the springs of water, curdle milk, and burn down barns. The matter assumed such proportions that the secretary referred it to the attorney general for a hearing. In the meantime, the Pennsylvania Transportation Company made the most strenuous efforts to secure the right-of-way. A large number of men were sent out to talk over the farmers into signing the leases. Handbills were distributed with an appeal to be generous and to free the oil business from a monopoly that was crushing it. These same circulars told the farmers that a monopoly had hired agents all along the route misrepresenting the facts about their intentions. Mr. Harley, under the excitement of the enterprise and the opposition it aroused, became a public figure, and in October the New York Graphic gave a long interview with him. In this interview, Mr. Harley claimed that the pipeline scheme was gotten up to escape the Standard Oil monopoly. Litigation, he declared, was all his scheme had to fear. John D. Rockefeller, president of the Standard Monopoly, he said, is working against us in the country newspapers, prejudicing the farmers and raising issues in the courts, and seeking also to embroil us with other carrying lines. It was not long, however, before something more serious than the farmers and their complaints got in the way of the Pennsylvania Transportation Company. This was a rumor that the company was financially embarrassed. Their certificates were refused on the market, and in November 
a receiver was appointed. Different members of the company were arrested for fraud, among them two or three of the best-known men in the oil regions. The rumors proved only too true. The company had been grossly mismanaged, and the verification of the charges against it put an end to this first scheme for a seaboard pipeline. While all these efforts doomed to failure or to but temporary success were making, a larger attempt to meet Mr. Rockefeller's consolidation was quietly underway. Among those interested in the oil business who had watched the growing power of the Standard with most concern was the head of the Empire Transportation Company, Colonel Joseph D. Potts. In connection with the Pennsylvania Railroad, Colonel Potts had built up this concern, founded in 1865, until it was the most perfectly developed oil transporter in the country. It operated 500 miles of pipe, owned a thousand oil tank cars, controlled large oil yards at Communipaw, New Jersey, was in every respect indeed a model business organization, and it had the satisfaction of knowing that what it was it had made itself from raw material, that its methods were its own, and that the practices it had developed were those followed by other pipeline companies. While the empire had far outstripped all its early competitors, there had grown up in the last year a rival concern which Colonel Potts must have watched with anxiety. This concern, known as the United Pipeline, was really a standard organization, for Mr. Rockefeller, in carrying out his plan of controlling all the oil refineries of the country, had been forced gradually into the pipeline business. His first venture seems to have been in 1873. In that year the oil shipping firm of J. A. Bostwick and Company laid a short pipe in the lower field, as the oil country along the Allegheny River was called. Now J. A. Bostwick was one of the charter members of the South Improvement Company, and when Mr. Rockefeller enlarged his business in 1872, because of the power that enterprise gave him, he took Mr. Bostwick into the standard. This alliance, like all the operations of that venture, was secret. The bitterness of the oil regions against the members of the South Improvement Company was so great for many months after the oil war that Mr. Bostwick and Mr. Rockefeller seemed to have concluded in 1873 that it would be a wise precautionary measure for them to lay a pipeline upon which they could rely for a supply of oil in case the oil men attempted again to cut them off from crude, as they had succeeded in doing in 1872. Accordingly, a line was built and put in the charge of a man who has since become known as one of the strong men of the Standard Oil Company. This man, Daniel O'Day, was a young Irishman who had first appeared in the oil country in 1867, and had at once made so good a record for himself as transporting agent that in 1869, when the oil shipping firm of J. A. Bostwick needed a man to look after its shipments, he was employed. The record he made in the next two years was such that it reached the ear of J. Gould himself, the president of the Erie, over which Mr. Bostwick was doing most of his shipping. Now the Erie at this time was making a hard fight to meet the growth of the Empire Transportation Company. So important did J. Gould think this struggle that in 1871 he himself came to the oil regions to look after it. One of the first men summoned to his private car, as it lay in Titusville, was the young Irishman O'Day. He came as he was, begrimed with the oil of the yards, but Mr. Gould was looking for men who could do things and was big enough to see through the grime. When the interview was concluded, Daniel O'Day had convinced Jay Gould 
that he was the man to divert the oil traffic from the Pennsylvania to the Erie Road, and he walked out with an order in his pocket which lifted him over the head of everybody on the road, so far as that particular freight was concerned, for it gave him the right to seize cars wherever he found them. For weeks after this he practically lived on the road, turning from the Pennsylvania in this time a large volume of freight and making it certain that it would have to look to its laurels as it never had before. The next year after this episode came the oil war. The anger of the oil men was poured out on everyone connected in any way with the stockholders of the South Improvement Company, and among others on Mr. O'Day. He knew no more of the South Improvement Company at the start than the rest of the region, but he did know that it was his business to take care of certain property entrusted to him. Resolutions calling on him to resign were passed by oil exchanges and producers' unions. Mobs threatened his cars, his stations, his person, but with the grit of his race he hung to his post. There was perhaps but one other man in the employ of members of the South Improvement Company who showed the same courage, and that was Joseph Seep of Titusville. Almost every other employee fled, the principals in the miserable business took care to stay out of the country, but Mr. O'Day and Mr. Seep polished their shillelaghs and stood over their property night and day until the war was over. Their courage did not go unrewarded. They were made the chief executive representatives in the region of the consolidated standard interest which followed the war, though neither of them knew at the time that they were in the standard employ. They supposed that the shipper Bostwick was an independent concern. It was a man of grit and force and energy then who took hold of the Standard's pipeline in 1873. Rapid growth went on. The little line with which they started became the America Transfer Company, gradually extending its pipes to seventy or eighty miles in Clarion County, and in 1875 building lines in the Bradford field. The American Transfer Company was soon working in harmony with the United Pipelines, of which Captain J. J. Vandergrift was the president. This system had its nucleus, like all the others of the country, in a short private line built in 1869 by Captain Vandergrift. It had grown until in 1874 it handled thirty percent of the oil of the region. Now in 1872, after the oil war, Captain Vandergrift had become a convert to Mr. Rockefeller's theory of the good of the oil business, and, as we have seen, had gone into the National Refiners Association as vice-president. Later he became a director in the Standard Oil Company. In 1874 he sold the one-third interest of his great pipeline system to Standard men, and the line was reorganized in the interest of that company. That is, the Standard Oil Combination in 1876 was a large transporter of oil, for the directors and leading stockholders owned and operated fully forty percent of the pipeline of the oil regions, owned all but a very few of the tank cars on both the Central and Erie roads, and controlled under leases two great oil terminals, those of the Erie and Central roads. It was little wonder that Colonel Potts watched this rapid concentration of transportation and refining interests with dread. It was more dangerous than the single shipper, and he had always fought that idea on the ground of policy. In the first place, it concentrates great power in the hands of one party over the trade of the road, he told an investigating committee of Congress in 1888. They can remove it at pleasure. In the second place, I think a large number of parties engaged in the same trade 
are very apt to divide themselves into two different classes as to the way of viewing markets. One class will be hopeful, and the other the reverse. The results will be there will always be one or the other class engaged in shipping some of the traffic. The whole question seems to me to resolve itself into determining what policy will bring the largest volume in the most regular way to the carrier, and it is my opinion, based upon such experiences as I have had, that a hundred shippers of a carload a day would be sure to give to a carrier a more regular volume of business, and I think probably a larger total volume of business in a year's time than one shipper of a hundred cars a day. Holding this theory, Colonel Potts had opposed the rebate to the standard granted by the Pennsylvania in 1875. Three years later he described in a communication published anonymously the effect of the rebates granted at that time. The final agreement with the railways was scarcely blotted dried ere stealthy movements towards the whole line of outside refiners were evident, although rather felt than seen. As long as practicable they were denied as mere rumors, but as they gradually became accomplished victories, as one refiner after another, through terror, through lack of skill in ventures, through financial weakness, fell shivering with dislike into the embrace of this commercial octopus, a sense of dread grew rapidly among those independent interests which yet lived, and notably among a portion of the railroad transporters. The chief railroad transporter who shared with the independents the sense of dread which Mr. Rockefeller's absorption of refineries awakened was Mr. Potts himself. As he saw the independents of Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, and the Creek shutting down, selling out, going into bankruptcy, while the Standard and its allies grew bigger day by day, as he saw the Standard interest developing a system of transportation greater than his own, he concluded to prevent, if possible, the one shipper in the oil business. We reached the conclusion, said Colonel Potts in 1888, that there were three great divisions in the petroleum business, the production, the carriage of it, and the preparation of it for market. If any one party controlled absolutely any one of those three divisions, it practically would have a very fair show of controlling the others. We were particularly solicitous about the transportation, and we were a little afraid that the refiners might combine in a single institution, and some of them expressed a strong desire to associate themselves permanently with us. We therefore suggested to the Pennsylvania Road that we should do what we did not wish to do, associate ourselves. That is, our business was transportation and nothing else. But, in order that we might reserve a nucleus of refining capacity to our lines, we suggested we should become interested in one or more refineries, and we became interested in two, one in Philadelphia and one in New York. It was incidental merely to our transportation. The extreme limit was 4,000 barrels a day only. It was in the spring of 1876 that the Empire began to interest itself in refineries. No sooner did Mr. Rockefeller discover this than he sought Mr. Scott and Mr. Cassett, then the third vice-president of the Pennsylvania, in charge of transportation. It was not fair, Mr. Rockefeller urged. The Empire was a transportation company. If it went into the refining business it was not to be expected that it would deal as generously with rivals as with its own factories. Besides, it would disturb the one shipper who, they had all agreed, was such a benefit to the railroads. Mr. Scott and Mr. Cassett might have reminded Mr. Rockefeller 
that he was as truly a transporter as the Empire, but if they did they were met with a prompt denial of this now well-known fact. He was an oil refiner, only that and nothing more. They tell us they do not control the United Pipelines, Mr. Cassett said in his testimony in 1879. Besides, urged Mr. Rockefeller, if they have refineries, of course they will give them better terms than they do us. Mr. Flagler told the Congressional Committee of 1888 that the Standard was unable to obtain rates through the Empire Transportation Company over the Pennsylvania Railroad for the Pittsburgh or Philadelphia refineries as low as were given by competing roads, and added he, from the fact that the business during those years was so very close as to leave scarcely any margin of profit under the most advantageous circumstances. And we, finding ourselves undersold in the markets by competitors whom we knew had not the same facilities in the way of mechanical appliances for doing the business, knew that there was but one conclusion to be reached, and that was that the Empire Transportation Company favored certain other shippers. I would say favored its own refineries to our injury. As the Standard Oil Company paid a dividend of about 14 per cent in both 1875 and 1876, besides spending large sums in increasing its plants and facilities, the margin of profit cannot have been so low as it seemed to Mr. Flagler in 1888 to have been, naturally enough, for he saw dividends up from 50 to nearly 100 per cent later. Mr. Vanderbilt and Mr. Jewett soon joined their protests to Mr. Rockefeller's. The steps, if the empire was then taking, said Mr. Jewett, unless checked, would result in a diversion largely of the transportation of oil from our roads. The New York Central Road and our own determined that we ought not to stand by and permit those improvements and arrangements to be made which, when completed, would be beyond our control. These protests increased in vehemence, until finally the Pennsylvania officials remonstrated with Mr. Potts. We endeavored, says Mr. Cassatt, to try to get those difficulties harmonized, talked of getting the Empire Transportation Company to lease its refineries to the Standard Oil Company or put them into other hands, but we did not succeed in doing that. Rather than do that, Colonel Potts told Mr. Cassatt, when he proposed that the Empire sell its refineries, we had rather you would buy us out and close our contract with you. When the Standard Oil Company and its allies, the Erie and Central, found that the Pennsylvania would not or could not drive the empire from its position, they determined on war. Mr. Jewett, the Erie president, in his testimony of 1879 before the Hepburn Commission, takes the burden of starting the fight. Whether the Standard Oil Company was afraid of the empire line as a refiner, he said, I have no means of knowing. I never propounded the question. We were opposed to permitting the Empire Line, a creature of the Pennsylvania Railroad, to be building refineries to become the owners of pipelines leading into the oil field and leading to the coast without a contest, and we made it without regard to the Standard Oil Company or anybody else. But when we did determine to make it, I have no doubt we demanded of the Standard Oil Company during the contest to withdraw its shipments from the Pennsylvania. Mr. Flagler gave the following version of the affair to the Congressional Committee of 1888. We made an agreement with the Empire Transportation Company for shipments over the Pennsylvania Railroad on behalf of the Pennsylvania interests, which were then owned by the Standard Oil Company simply because there was no alternative. 
it was the only vehicle by which these Pittsburgh refineries and the Philadelphia refineries carried their crude oil over the Pennsylvania Railroad. There was no other medium by which business could be done over the Pennsylvania Railroad except through the Empire Transportation Company, a subsidiary company of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Empire Transportation Company was not only the owner of pipelines in the oil regions and tank cars on the Pennsylvania Railroad, but also of refineries at Philadelphia and New York, and to that extent were our competitors. We, having no interest whatever in transportation, naturally felt jealous of the Empire Transportation Company and drew the attention of the northern lines. By that I mean the New York Central and the Erie Railroads. With the peculiar position of the oil business on the Pennsylvania Railroad, their attention was called to this very soon after the Empire Transportation Company began the business of refining. The position taken by the two northern trunk lines in their intercourse with the Pennsylvania Railroad, as was admitted by Mr. Cassett in his testimony and stated to me by the representatives of the two northern roads, Mr. Vanderbilt and Mr. Jewett, was that it was unfair to them that the Pennsylvania Railroad did not divest itself of the manufacturing business. Backed by the Erie and Central, Mr. Rockefeller, in the spring of 1877, finally told Mr. Cassett that he would no longer send any of his freight over the Pennsylvania unless the Empire gave up its refineries. The Pennsylvania refused to compel the Empire to this course. According to Mr. Potts's own story, the road was partially goaded to its decision by a demand for more rebates, which came from Mr. Rockefeller at about the time he pronounced his ultimatum on the empire. They swooped upon the railways, says Colonel Potts, with a demand for a vast increase in their rebate. They threatened, they pleaded, it has been said they purchased, however that may be, they conquered. Minor officials entrusted with the vast power of according secret rates conceded all they were asked to do even to concealing from their superiors for months the real nature of their illegal agreements. Probably it was at this time that there took place the little scene between Mr. Vanderbilt and Mr. Rockefeller and his colleagues, of which the former told the Hepburn Commission in 1879. The Standard people were after more rebates. They affirmed other roads were giving larger rebates than Mr. Vanderbilt, and that their contract with him obliged him to give as much as anybody else did. Gentlemen, he told them, you cannot walk into this office and say we are bound by any contract to do business with you at any price that any other road does that is in competition with us. It is only on a fair competitive basis, a fair competition for business at a price that I consider will pay the company to do it. Soon after this interview, so rumor says, Mr. Vanderbilt sold the standard stock he had acquired as a result of the deals made through the South Improvement Company. I think they are smarter fellows than I am, a good deal, he told the commission somewhat ruefully, and if you come in contact with them, I guess you will come to the same conclusion. Spurred on then by resentment at the demands for new rebates, as well as by the injustice of Mr. Rockefeller's demand that the Empire give up its refineries, the Pennsylvania accepts the standards challenge, resolved to stand by the Empire, and henceforth to treat all its shippers alike. No sooner was its resolution announced in March 1877 than all the freight of the Standard, amounting to fully 65% of the road's oil traffic, was taken away. An exciting situation, one of out-and-out -out war, developed, for the Empire at once entered on an energetic campaign 
to make good its loss by developing its own refineries and by forming a loyal support among the independent oil men. Day and night the officers worked on their problem and with growing success. When Mr. Rockefeller saw this, he summoned his backers to action. The Erie Central began to cut rates to entice away the independents. It is a sad reflection on both the honor and the foresight of the body of oilmen who had been crying so loudly for help that as soon as the rates were cut of the standard lines, many of them began to attempt to force the Pennsylvania to follow. They found the opportunity for immediate profits by playing one belligerent against the other too tempting to resist, says Colonel Potts. We paid them large rebates, says Mr. Cassatt. In fact, we took anything we could get for transporting their oil. In some cases, we paid out rebates more than the whole freight. I recollect one instance where we carried oil to New York for Mr. Olin or someone he represented. I think at eight cents less than nothing. I did not say any large quantities, but oil was carried at that rate. End of chapter six, part one. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.